0: Good morning, all you brave souls who uh, park your dog sleds out front and pick off your snowshoes. I'd like uh, for you all to do an experiment for me this morning. Look around you, look in front of you, behind you, down the aisle, across the room, and I want each one of you, every one of you, to realize that every other person in this room besides you has their act entirely together. No one else had a major fight with their family trying to get to church on time. No one else struggles with their marriage, sometimes even wondering if uh, there's any point in trying whether it's going to work. No one else struggles with their, uh, the loneliness of their singleness, wondering to themselves whether there's any place in uh, God's plan for an unmarried person, wondering if he has any clue about the uh, feelings, the needs of single people. No one else uh, is feeling guilty because of their attraction to that person at work who seems to treat you with so much more respect, so much better than your mate, who touches something, uh, uh, some deep unmet need inside you. No one else uh, struggles with explosive anger that destroys and uh, denigrates people around you. No one else drinks too much or is addicted to legal or illegal drugs. No one else is a uh, uh, negligent parent who can't get over their own issues, who, who uh, finds escape in television or eating or some other way of, of coping. Now, no one else has ever gossiped. <laughs> we got one over there. <laughs> no one else has ever said mean things about somebody just to feel accepted by someone else. No one has uh, had an affair, a divorce, an abortion, homosexual experiences. No one else has uh, been abusive, been overcome by lust, been so frustrated that they cursed God, felt suicidal, lied, cheated, stolen. You are the only one. And if anybody else found out, they would be shocked. Uh, They would be disappointed. They would uh, probably reject you. So keep it to yourself. Don't tell anybody. Pretend that it's all okay. Like you're like everybody else. Now, obviously, I'm being facetious here. Uh, It's impossible for what I said to be true. And it isn't true. But I wonder how many of us feel that way. I would bet that most of us feel that way, at least at times when we're feeling guilty. You know, guilt does terrible things to us, to the way we look at each other, the way we look at God, the way we uh, look at ourselves. And I'm going to look at a passage this morning that has a lot to say about these things. I want to look at Luke 7, from about verse 36 to uh, chapter 8, verse 3. I'm going to start by just reading through that, explaining some of the details. Then I'm going to go back and, and talk about each of the, the, the main players in the story. So let's start with verse 36. <clears throat> Luke seven thirty-six. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Right now Jesus is traveling around the country, uh, preaching the gospel, healing people. Back in uh, verses 16 and 17 of the same chapter, we're told that people were saying that he was a great prophet and that word had gotten through the entire country. Everyone was talking about it. So when Jesus went into a new town, it, it was customary for the leading Pharisees, the religious leaders, to invite him over and check out this great prophet. So that's what happened. Jesus goes to their house. We're told that they recline at table. Now, we would have said that they sat down to eat. But in in those days, they didn't sit in chairs around a table. What they did was they laid on these kind of couches, these chaise lounges. The the table would be set in the middle of a room or often a large courtyard. And everybody would lay on these couches with their weight on their left arm and they'd eat with their right hand. And their feet and and bodies would kind of radiate out, uh, kind of coming out like the uh, petals on a daisy. Anyway... When a woman who lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, apparently very expensive perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. You might be wondering how this woman got into this house. You know, in my mind, I picture sitting at my dining room table, this woman comes running in and starts doing, you know, how did she get in there? Did she just open the front door and walk in? Was this very rude? Some commentators suggest she snuck in with the servants. But the fact is, in that day, at that time... It was not at all unusual for people to come in off the street when there was an important dignitary visiting someone. They would come in, and it wasn't rude, it wasn't impolite, and they would stand around the edges of the room or even sometimes sit and quietly listen to what was going on. time when I was in the Philippines, a team I was leading was ministering on this little, very tiny island, and it was lunchtime, so we wanted to take a break, and I wanted to get the team away and talked to them about what was going on in private. So we walked to the other end of the island, sat down, but the entire village came out and just sat right around us. So I uh, talked to one of the village leaders and I asked if we could have a little privacy. So he got up and he talked to the other people. They all got this very confused look on their face and they backed up about 10 feet and sat down again. See, they, they had no concept of privacy. They, they, it wasn't that they were rude. They weren't being uh, inconsiderate. They just didn't know what we wanted or why we would possibly want it. And the same thing is true with this woman. She was not being rude and coming into this house, coming up behind Jesus with his feet coming out from the table and to begin to wash his feet and anoint them. But this wasn't just any woman either. Uh, Our text tells us that she was a woman who led a sinful life in this town. She was well known in this town. In fact, uh, in the Greek says that she was a profound or deep sinner. Several commentaries suggested that that was a euphemism for a prostitute or at least someone who lived by means of her sexual relationship with various men. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him. Notice Jesus answered him. He didn't say anything out loud. Now, I don't think Jesus knew what he was thinking because Jesus is God and he knows everything. Jesus is God and he knows everything. But I think the reason that he knew what was on this man's mind was that what everyone in that room was thinking was written all over their faces. Jesus just looked around and could see what they were thinking. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii. That's about uh, probably about $50,000 in today's amounts. The other 50, about $5,000. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, Well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. So she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. Okay, that's what happened. So let's uh, take a look again, this time looking at each of the major characters. Let's, start, let's, let's take them in order of their appearance, starting with, with the Pharisee first. This man, uh, Simon, was a Pharisee. Now, for us to call somebody a Pharisee, that's a put-down. That's a bad word, a Pharisee. But back then it wasn't. All it meant to them was that here was a, a, a religious leader a leader in his community, a leader in his church, someone who took his relationship with God very seriously, a conservative believer. That's, this man uh, invites Jesus to his house. That's a good move. We have no reason to think that he wasn't open to Jesus, who he was, what he had to say. But then something happens, and, and this man has trouble with what happens. First of all, he's very uncomfortable with this woman's presence. And then he's very disappointed in the way Jesus handles the situation. I mean, if this woman had touched him, he would have asked the woman to leave. I mean, it's absolutely improper for a woman to touch a man in public. And this particular woman is one you would particularly not want to associate with. And what would everybody think? What, how many people would be offended? How much confusion would there be about what was really going on? How, how, how would his Pharisee friends respond if, if he let something like this happen? So he's really worried about what people are thinking. And notice that, that, that Jesus points out that, that this man didn't do the, the polite things a host would do in those days. It would have been very polite, considerate, gracious for Him to uh, have one of his servants wash Jesus' feet when they first came in. See, in those days, uh, the roads are just dirt paths. It was hot. People's feet got hot and dirty. And it was a matter of politeness, at least to offer some water to, to soothe and to clean the feet. It would have been very polite, very gracious to kiss your guest as they come in. You know, a nice, manly, Mediterranean hug with a kiss on each cheek. It would have been very respectful of this teacher, this rabbi, to anoint his head with oil. But this guy doesn't do any of these things. Why doesn't he? Is he uncouth? Is he just kind of a social incompetent and doesn't know how to handle guests? No. Is he trying to slam Jesus? I really don't think so. He calls Jesus... He answers respectfully to the questions that Jesus asks. I don't think he is trying to intentionally insult Jesus. I just think that Simon was so worried about what his friends would think. Had he gone through all of these social graces, his friends would assume that he really embraced Jesus, that he was with Jesus 100%, that he had really bought into everything Jesus was saying and doing. And he didn't want to be that closely associated. Simon is worried about what other people think. You know, how many of us hold back from Jesus because we're worried about what our friends will think? Simon's not a bad person. He just can't get past that focus on what everyone else thinks. Simon's sitting there looking down the aisle wondering what everybody's thinking about him. See, Simon had been accepted by his peer group, the religious leaders. He had made it to the top of his social ladder, of his church ladder. He was successful, but he was also cold, and loveless, and insecure. Here was a guy that was willing to to flirt with Jesus and the things that Jesus had to say, as long as it didn't threaten his success at the game. But to really get honest with Jesus about his heart and and about his sin would blow the whole game. And he wasn't willing. He wasn't ready to do that. Simon was a Pharisee. That meant he was very careful about everything that he did. Pharisees didn't sin. At least not externally. And not, not in ways that mattered to religious types. See, he would never lie or cheat or steal or commit adultery or bear false witness. He was faithful, attending church, giving, reading his Bible. And see, these things are good. These are great. But as Jesus says elsewhere, these guys were whitewashed tombs. They looked great on the outside. But inside they were full of rot and stink and death. They're dead on the inside. You see, and this is important, religion is really a game. You learn the rules, you play by the rules, and you win by the rules. But if you play that game, you end up empty, critical, joyless, insecure. You see, if you want to play that game, learn all the rules, and and do all the externals, all the things that, uh, that make other religious types accept you, you can do that. You can win at that game. But if you want to be like Jesus, if you want to really love God, love other people, you've got to abandon that game. You know, to the degree that we as a church encourage this kind of thing, we'll sit around looking down the aisle wondering what everybody's thinking about us instead of getting serious about loving God and loving other people. That's just the way it works. As long as we put our energy into playing the game, we've got very little emotional or mental energy left to worry about what God thinks or what my wife or my children or my neighbor is feeling. Too much is consumed in keeping the mask up and pretending in looking good while the insides are dying or hurting or rotting. Too much is invested in any situation. We can't just let down and love because we've got to win. We've got to make sure that we demonstrate that any conflict with the other person is their fault. The, that we have been right and righteous all along. The fact that we're destroying our marriages, our families, our children, can't be allowed to intrude because that might make us lose. But again, these are games that we don't even want to play. The way Jesus put it here, we, we, in our refusal to face our inner sins we are incapable of loving greatly because we are not willing to be forgiven greatly we cannot love greatly and again to the degree that we do that we may uh, be successful in other people's eyes but Jesus sees your heart he knows what you're really feeling And you do too. You're not really fooling anybody that matters. The way that it works is for you, me, to face our sin, to let our Lord forgive it completely. And then in the awareness of how much He has forgiven us, let that spill over into loving Him and loving others. That's the way it works. It breaks my heart to sit with a husband or a wife or a mother, a father, and all they want to do is, is is to argue, to explain to me, to show me how the destruction of their relationship with their spouse or their child or their parent is not their fault. Now they don't even ask the question: How do I love this person? How do I minister here? How how can I seek reconciliation? The whole focus of their energy is to get me to declare them the winner. And they just lose. Well, anyway, let's uh, take a look at Jesus. Simon is a guy who, who is hung up on the game. First of all, notice that Jesus goes into this man's house. Now, why? Doesn't he know what we religious types are like? course he does. But you see, he loves Pharisees. Jesus doesn't just write anybody off. He loves Simon. And he wanted to to, to come and to talk to Simon and to rescue Simon from the death trap of his religious games. Any way of thinking that keeps us from facing our sin is a death trap. And this woman, Jesus loves her. He, he uh, reaches out to her. He doesn't allow his focus on Simon, the fact that he's, he's there to minister to Simon, to cause him to forget about her. And in his words and his actions, he protects her. Even while he's ministering, even while he's speaking to Simon, he's taking care of her. Jesus loves people on both sides of him. And he does it without taking sides, like we usually do. We'll jump on one side or the other. Jesus doesn't jump on the side of the religious types, looking down on someone who has an obviously sinful lifestyle. But He also doesn't jump on the side of the worldly types, who who write off those religious types for their hypocrisy and their self-righteousness. Jesus loves both. And He addresses both of them. He speaks straight to both of them. And He's able to do that because He doesn't really care what people think of him, his sole focus is love. And in loving this woman, it works out perfectly. He does exactly what Simon needs too. By loving this woman, he confronts Simon with his wrong way of of approaching life. See, Jesus spoke the truth in love perfectly. That is very hard for us. We either speak the truth or we love. We rarely do both. When someone is sinning, we uh, either just walk away and maybe take a few shots, tell them to stop it, tell them the truth as we walk away. Or we uh, suppress the truth and we just embrace them and pretend that their sin is okay. See, Jesus doesn't do either. He doesn't reject and He doesn't tell people that their sin is okay. He accepts people, but He speaks the truth to them. He offers each of these people grace grace that that forgives their sin and grace that changes them so that they stop sinning. You see this this kind of twofold impact of grace, forgiveness and transformation really frees us from sin. It frees us from the guilt of sin and then it frees us from the control of sin. When we come to Jesus and receive his grace, we are transformed. He turns us from Sinners frees us to become lovers. But only if we will let Him. Only if we will accept it. And this is the stinger. This is the place we get stuck. In order to accept it, we have to admit that we need it. We have to face our sins. We have to trust Him enough to look at our sins and to accept His verdict on our sins, and then we have to trust him enough to accept his forgiveness of our sins. I realize not everyone uh, responded well to Jesus' love. We don't know how Simon responded. Many people in the scriptures walked away angry. Many hated him for what he said. Many, <coughs> excuse me, refused to, to admit that he loved them. Jesus tells us the same, that if we learn to love like He does, not everyone will respond. Some will hate us for it. Some will call the truth intolerant. Some will call our love manipulation. And we need to know that right up front. Our goal is to love like He loves. But we need to realize that some will not face their sins. And even though we love them, and try to accept them, the fact that we speak the truth will be so offensive to them that they will walk away. The key is how they respond to their own sin. And the key for each of us is how we respond to our own sin. Like I said, we don't know how Simon responded. The story doesn't go far enough to tell us. But we do know how this woman responded. And it was wonderful. The other day I was reading uh, Philip Yancey's book, Um, The Jesus I Never Knew. And he says in there, As we studied Jesus' life, we noticed a striking pattern. The more unsavory the characters, the more at ease they seemed to feel around Jesus. And he goes on to point out all of the, the tax gatherers and the prostitutes and the terrorists and the others that hung around Jesus and felt comfortable and at ease. Then he points out the religious leaders, the civic leaders, the wealthy, who were uncomfortable and who, who uh, kept Jesus at a distance. And I got to thinking about that, trying to figure out why that might have been. I think for one thing, Jesus refused to accept the social gradation of society with the, the wealthy and the religious at the top and the poor and the irreligious at the bottom. And I think that felt really good to those who were at the bottom. They liked that, that Jesus treated people as people, that he, he, he wasn't into to, to these uh, comparisons. He wasn't going to uh, be a respecter of persons. But I don't think that's it, all of it. I, I think there's more. I ran across this C.S. Lewis quote. He said, Prostitutes are not in danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous are in that danger. See, I think the openness of some of the more flagrant sinners is that there is no game. They, they know they are sinning. There, there's no. There, there's not the same facade. They don't have to be convinced that they're sinners. They know they're sinners, and so they're more easily are able to accept our Lord's forgiveness. Well, so many of the rest of us are able to convince ourselves that we're winning the game, that we're doing okay, because we have a a few of the superficial externals all in order. One time when I was a um, fresh intern at Peninsula Bible Church, this was my very first ministry assignment. I was on a counseling rotation. They stuck me in this little office with a little book of counseling resources, and uh, I had to counsel. And the first person to come in, there's a young woman in uh, black leather pants, a halter top, bright colored tattoos on her arm and chest. She tells me that she has uh, spent the last five years in a biker gang. And now she wants to become a Christian, and how should she go about that? So I kind of stammered and stuttered and explained how to do that. And then we prayed together, and she received Christ. I got her a job at the uh, sandwich shop that I worked in, so I had a chance to watch her spiritual growth. And it was phenomenal. It was meteoric. She just grew every day. And she, she, her job <clears throat> was serving beer and wine in the, uh, the lounge part of this restaurant. And over and over, she would come running into the other part of the restaurant where I was... She'd gotten a conversation with some customer. She'd shared the gospel, and he had asked a question that she didn't have an answer for. So she'd grab me and drag me back over there, and have me explain it to her and, and, and to the, to the customer. And she was an absolute delight. Now, I'm convinced that the reason for her phenomenal growth, the reason for her easy spiritual birth, was that when she walked into that office, she had no question that she was a sinner. There were no games being played. She, she knew she was a sinner. And she told me that. She told me some of her life and some of the emptiness. There was no blaming. She was not pointing out to what others had done to her. She was not excusing. The only thing that was there was a pure hunger for our Lord's forgiveness. And when she received that, there was nothing but pure freedom. Her guilt was gone and she was a new person. This is the same story of this woman. She had apparently met up with Jesus before, either heard Him or or even maybe perhaps talked with Him. But her sins had been forgiven. The, The language, the story Jesus tells, the language He used, make it clear that she had been forgiven and that what you see in our story is the response of a heart that was full of gratitude. Jesus affirms her that she had been forgiven at the end of our story. But she walks in there, a forgiven woman. And what we see is the overflow, the spilling out, the explosion of her gratitude and her love for the one who had forgiven her so profoundly. That explains, you know, the amazing actions on her part. You know, think about what this woman did. I've often heard it said that churches are not safe places. To, to expose your, your needs and your, your sins, your weaknesses, your faults. Because people will criticize you. They may reject you. They'll put you down. And unfortunately, that is too often true. But talk about your unsafe place. This woman walked into a house full of Pharisees. Knowing, knowing that they were going to reject her. Knowing that they were going to criticize her and look down on her. But she walked in there because Jesus had forgiven her. And her desire to honor Him and to love Him was so much greater than any other thing in her life that she was willing to put up with the unsafeness just for the chance to love Him and honor Him. And I respect, admire this woman. But I also envy her. You know, her boldness was not a result of her strength of character and her fortitude. Her boldness was a result of the fact that Jesus had profoundly forgiven her, that she was clean for the first time in her life. And that excited her. That was the biggest thing in her mind, in her heart, in her life. You see, she wasn't forgiven because she loved boldly. She loved boldly because she was so totally forgiven. And she knew it. That's where her change comes from. Simon was the guy looking for a safe place. This woman didn't need it because she was looking at Jesus. And she was seeing in Jesus the forgiveness, the love that she needed. And it was out of that love for Jesus that she takes this bold step. And her tears... We're tears of joy. We're tears of release. We're tears of freedom. We're tears of love. This was a healthy and free person. Now, so many of us live joyless and and constricted lives. Why? Well, often it's because we are carrying around a burden of guilt Maybe it's guilt for some past sin that you just can't bear to look at and you're running from it. Maybe somebody has hurt you so badly that you carry around the sin of a, of a bitter heart, a bitter spirit. Maybe there's some sin right now in your life that you are embracing and, and you refuse to face the fact that the emptiness you feel, the hurt and misery you feel is not somebody else's fault, but it's a product of the guilt in your life. Well, there's no way that you can pay for it. Like the people in Jesus' story, we don't have the means to pay our debt. We can't pay God back. We can't do enough good stuff. We can't love enough, serve enough to pay God back, rid ourselves of that guilt. It doesn't work that way. The way it works, again, is to trust Jesus enough to, in His presence, look at our sin. See it for what it is. Let the shame and the pain, the reality of it, penetrate. And then trust Him enough to believe Him when He says His death on the cross covers that sin. To accept that payment. To accept then the cleansing, the healing, the freedom from guilt. To believe that we are completely forgiven. We are clean. We are free. We are pure. And then let the reality of that overflow to gratitude and to love for such a great Savior. Let it overflow into acts, expensive acts, outrageous acts of expressing our love to Him. Regardless of what our friends are going to think, regardless of what it's going to do in our social standing, to love Him enough to be so aware of how completely we're forgiven that we don't have to worry about what others think because we know He loves us and we are completely accepted by Him. That's the way it works. Now I want to take a real brief look at uh, the next three verses, of the first three verses of chapter 8 before we conclude. Let me just read these verses. After this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women, who had been cured of evil evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. And we're told by this that Jesus was continuing to travel around And his twelve disciples were traveling with him, and so were a fairly large number of women. He goes on, and Luke goes on to list some of these women. He mentions Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons cast out of her. We can only imagine the horror of her life up to that point. Then he also mentions Joanna, whose husband was a very high court official. He was the personal secretary to the king, which is about the most trusted position you could be in. So Joanna was a lady of the court. So you have a very high society woman, and you have a woman who, in all probability, had been thrown out of society. Both of these traveling with Jesus, along with a fairly large number of other women. In fact, these women were supporting Jesus. From the time Jesus left his carpenter shop, he had no direct... Uh, means uh, uh, of financial income he lived on financial support so our missionaries our field staff uh, David and Carolyn with Idaho mountain ministries are in good company you see all in fact all of us who are uh, paid through this church live on support on your gifts and contributions and that's appropriate because even our lord lived on gifts and contributions. But what does this have to do with what we've been talking about? Let me tell you. This doesn't really jump out at us because we live in 1990. But for those days, it would have been absolutely unheard of to have women in your entourage. Uh, The the disciples were all men, and it was expected that a, a rabbi would have his disciples. But to have women traveling with him. Women were not even allowed to go to school. They, they they were considered inferior. Why waste the time educating a woman? It just causes trouble. Women weren't accepted into the synagogue as full members. You see, for much of the Jewish tradition, women were treated as inferior. But it's even worse than that. Because for much Jewish tradition and most of Christian tradition, up to about the 1700s, women were also considered guilty just for being women. Now, let me read a, a extreme example of this from the church father, Tertullian. But he said, Do you not believe that you are each an Eve The sentence of God on this sex of yours lives even in our time, so it is necessary that the guilt should live on as well. You are the one who opened the door to the devil. You are the one who plucked the fruit from the forbidden tree. You are the first who deserted divine law. You are the one who persuaded him whom the devil was not strong enough to attack. All too easily you destroyed the image of God, man. See, throughout the centuries... Women have been made to feel inferior, somehow wrong, just for being women. And when you understand that that was the the backdrop in Jesus' day, and you see that Jesus has absolutely none of this in His attitude, in His relationship with the women around Him. And you don't see this attitude in Scripture anywhere. When you understand that, you begin to re- realize and recognize how many instances in our Gospels are of Jesus talking to women, healing women, doing things for women, revealing Himself to women. You never see Him treating them as if they were of lesser value, or with less respect. In fact, nowhere in Scripture do we have any women who oppose Jesus, or even abandoned him. The people who stuck with Jesus to the end were all women, except for John. You see, this attitude, this view that somehow there's something wrong, something evil about women is not from our Lord. And it's not an attitude that he tolerated. Even in our example, it's the woman who responds to Jesus in the way that we need to respond. She's the example for us, not Simon. You see, Jesus refuses to to play the games that, that we play in an effort to salve our insecurity, putting down one sex or another, one race or another, one culture or another, one economic status or another. You see, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. We are all equally accepted in Christ. We don't find for ourselves peace and security in trying to elevate ourselves by putting others down. We find peace and security by coming to our Lord and receiving freely from His hand, His love, and His forgiveness. And that's what we've been talking about this morning. Let me encourage you again Whatever your sin, whatever your guilt, come to Him. He loves you. He is gentle. He knows you. And He knows the pain. He knows the confusion. He knows the fears. But He also knows that the solution is for you to let Him forgive you. You can be free. You can be clean. You know, I look down the aisles of this church... And I know that there's other people here besides myself who need forgiveness. And I want this church to be a place where everyone feels safe, able to be themselves, to be honest, to be open. I want this church to be a place where we are learning to love like Jesus loves. But if you're waiting for that, if you're waiting to feel safe here, if you're waiting to be loved perfectly, you're missing an opportunity. Because it's not us. It's not the people sitting around you. It's not the pastors or the elders. It's Jesus that you can trust. When you come to him and you let him clean you thoroughly, forgive you completely, and you recognize how much he has forgiven you, then out of a desire to honor him and to love him, then you come here and you be yourself. You be open. You be free. And that's going to have a profound effect on this whole church. Let me read a note and an article that one of our pastors, Jan Nielsen, gave to me after we talked about this passage. She wrote, Chris, for this Sunday sermon, I had another thought. When we understand that we can be, that we can be forgiven, We are released from the heavy load of guilt and shame that we tend to carry for far too long. I think this would be a good opportunity to teach what forgiveness means and how we can receive it. The woman who was forgiven wept. Why? And she refers to this article. The article is part of a letter that was written to focus on the family ministry. It says, Every time I turn on the radio, all I hear about abortion is condemnation and judgment. What about those of us who made the tragic choice to abort our baby and are now living with the pain and guilt and shame? We're offered no hope. I feel so unworthy, helpless, that I'm going to hell. I might as well kill myself. I believe in God and Jesus, but I can't live with myself anymore. I murdered my baby and don't deserve to live. One of the uh, focus staff wrote her back immediately, shared her own testimony, explained to her, Our Lord's forgiveness. That He doesn't minimize sin. He forgives it. She wrote back. God bless you and thank you. If it weren't for your being obedient to God, I might not have been alive today. Thank you. Your caring concern and love touched me. As I write this letter, I am uncontrollably weeping, but with tears of joy. See, regardless of your sin... Regardless of how you feel, the people around you, the church looks at you because of your sin. Put your eyes on Jesus. Come to Him. Whatever your guilt, no matter how unforgivable it feels, you've been carrying it for far too long. Come to Him and let Him forgive you profoundly. And you can experience the freedom, the health, the joy that this woman experienced. Let's pray. Lord, I have known you for years. I have enjoyed your cleansing and your forgiveness. Yet how often I fall back into the game, to hiding, to pretending, to covering up and holding on rather than to to letting you just cleanse and free. Pray for any here who have never experienced that freedom, that forgiveness. Lord, show yourself to them. May they see a, a glimpse of you in us. But then would you please reveal yourself in their heart. They may trust you enough to accept your forgiveness. And I pray for those here who know you, but who've forgotten, who who have been carrying some guilt, who've been blaming it on their family or their spouse or their boss or some other thing. Lord, I pray that they would just lay themselves open before you. Discover again your understanding, your compassion, and the power of your forgiveness to transform us. Lord, uh, we do trust you. Fill us with faith that we might believe your verdict on our sin, your payment for that sin, and the reality of our absolute cleansing before you. Just pray this in your name. Amen.